welcome to the first episode of the second series of the Digital Reflections podcast. I am your host, Lindsay Maycock. Today, we're going to be discussing innovation at scale, which is a massive topic, I know, but we're in with some fantastic guests today, so you're in capable hands. Starting with Giuliano Liguori. Giuliano is a strategic digital transformation leader and knows everything worth knowing around emerging technologies and how to convert them into lucrative investments for increased return on investment. Giuliano is the CEO of Canovi and founder of Digital Leaders, where he drives innovation strategy and educates on his expertise in driving business growth. Giuliano, thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? Hello, hello. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me in this uh, podcast. And a warm welcome to Mark Enzer, who is a champion of digitalization, systems thinking and collaboration in the built environment. With a wealth of knowledge in transformational change in the infrastructure industry, Mark is a strategic advisor at Mock McDonald and former head of the National Digital Twin Programme. Plus, he's an author, as he is the lead author of the Infrastructure Carbon Review published by HM Treasury. Welcome, Mark. How are you today? Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. I'm great. And last but certainly not least, we have IOTIC's very own Ali Nichol. He is a cheerleader for change, founding member and head of engagement at IOTICS. Ali, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm very well. I'm very well. I have slight imposter syndrome sitting alongside uh, Mark and Giuliano today. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. So uh, I think a good place to start off this topic would be uh, taking a look at how we understand the systemic challenges we face in society. So. How can systemic thinking help us to understand these complex issues? So I, I wonder, Mark, if you might have a, a word on this, because um, I know that systemic challenges are very much at the heart of where you see technology's ability to create flourishing platforms, uh, allowing people and societies to move forward. Yeah, yeah, I d definitely got some opinions on, on this one. <laughs> um, so, so I guess um, a starting point for me is is just seeing the great challenges that we face you know the big challenges of our age uh, all seem to be systemic uh, so whether you look at trying to achieve net zero uh, or achieving climate resilience uh, or achieving circular economy uh, or if you look beyond that and not not much beyond it but into challenges around biodiversity you know, all of these are system level challenges that simply can't be solved in silos and you know, therefore, it means if, if we have a hope of addressing these big challenges of our age, we need to take a systems based approach to them. Uh, and so I, I feel that it, it's now an absolute necessity to do that. It's, it's not it's not an option anymore. Uh, and so what that means is that, yeah, we need to have some kind of big picture thinking, some systems thinking. Uh, but we also need to start bringing uh, some tools is, is, you know, some, some way of helping us to understand the systems better and intervene more effectively. Uh, and, and definitely the, you know, the, the subject of this, the kind of innovation at, at scale, kind of feels rather relevant when you look at the size of the challenge. You know, that, that's basically what we have to do. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, we are living in the, in the age of a complexity. Uh, you know, and our world is increasingly digital and decentralized. 
uh, an operational solution for embracing complex in the digital age is required for me. The faster our world and our markets change through technology, uh, the faster we must acquire systemic thinking skills to think through the, the shift and innovation required to lead, adapt and simply keep up. Organization must protect basic needs of responsibilities and, uh, and grow and this, uh, this can no longer be done through a traditional hierarchical functional structure with its resulting silos. The way out um, of uh, this conflict is to acknowledge, acknowledge that an organization is a network and uh, of course a part of a large network of value. I think that's really interesting. And I think um, one of the things that I see in both your, rather here in both your answers is A, the recognition of the silos, but B, the very human aspect of, of what needs to be doing. You know, that we, we need to use tools. We need people with skills, as you put it, Julia. That, that this isn't, this is a technology is a part of how we make the change. It is an important part and it is a driver for both, the, in many ways, the challenges and the solutions we face. But the human element to both the what we're doing and why we're doing it um, feels to me incredibly important and not to be overlooked. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and I, I think that if if all we have are technical solutions, we, we won't solve it. There's just no way. Uh, and I think particularly in this um, this context of, of looking at the systems, because what it means is it, is it, it um, kind of transcends uh, individual organizations. Uh, as I said earlier, you can't solve it in silos and organizations tend to be silos. The, the solutions have to be cross organizational solutions. In fact, cross sector solutions. Uh, so that means that we, we totally have to address those human and organizational factors. And in fact, when we were working on the National Digital Twin Programme, we were um, trying to describe it as a socio-technical change programme, uh, recognising that the, the technical aspects were necessary, but not sufficient. Uh, and, and we you know, utterly have to address those, the, the social side uh, in order to make it actually work. Absolutely. So I'm hearing a, a sense of urgency from all of you. But what I think would be really interesting to know is, so why now exactly have people started to recognise that, you know, hold on a second, we can't solve these issues in, in silos. And like, the, the, the evidence has been there for a long time now on climate change. So how come this sudden behaviour change across the board? Um, well, I, I think it's been it's been building, hasn't it? Like you say, there's been a lot of evidence out there for a while, and climate change, I guess, is is the big one. Um, but it does seem that in society, it takes us a while to cotton on to some things which were obvious to a small number of people a long time ago. Uh, but what what it does feel like now is that we've got to almost a tipping point, you know, almost a kind of a critical mass. Of, of people who are going around saying the same kind of thing, who recognize that you know, we need systems-based solutions for systemic problems. Uh, and and it, it, it's almost there where there's enough people saying it that we can actually do it. So, so I think in some ways it's a, it's a timing thing um, because it's never enough just to have a few kind of isolated profits pointing to the solution, is it? You, you, you need to have enough mainstream people saying it for it to actually start to happen. Absolutely. And uh, Giuliano, I'd be interested to hear from your experience as well, from uh, people that you've spoken to. What are some of the sentiments you've heard? 
As I said before, uh, we need to start thinking that uh, new organizational design is emerging with to have the, the aim to sustain the innovation. It is based on the management of complex, strongly interconnected network projects. Designing uh, design organization as a network of projects equips them structurally, operationally and cognitively to optimize their interaction with larger networks of value through digital and decentralized transactions. This requires a complete shift from a mechanical mindset to a systemic one to overcome the command and control management style in favor of world system optimization. I think that's really interesting, uh, if I may, Lindsay, because I think, I think the, the combination there of Mark's point about a question of timing and Juliana's question on management is that actually in many ways we're seeing, we're seeing a timing shift where um, some of those enlightened profits are now in positions to make change and influence behaviors in others. Yeah, because it, it isn't about uh, a small group, a silo of itself of people saying, right, we're going to go off and, and do this. Yeah, we, we need to take everyone with us. And I wonder if there's been a, in a change in kind of the roles that people have as part of that, as part of that timing shift, as part of that critical mass. And I was reflecting just, just a couple of weeks ago with some people about the fact that we are, we continue to live in interesting times. You know, alongside the systemic challenges we see and, and longitudinal systemic challenges, we all are living through some point challenges in terms of uh, crises around um, gas and, and, and electricity, especially in continental Europe uh, and the UK. Um, and what I think is interesting as an indicator of the why now and the fact that we have reached critical mass is the sorts of conversations that we're having here today haven't stopped. I think in the past that we saw uh, sproutings of conversations around things like net zero, and then you would say, oh, look, we have other priorities that we have to deal with. You know, there's a short term issue. There's a political issue uh, in the UK, at the moment, whatever it might be, kind of distracted. And actually what we're seeing is that the mass, the management, the organizational structures are changing in such a way that there is a recognition that this, this is a priority. You know, I've heard some brilliant stuff about yeah, the coming together we saw from lots of organizations, people like the Emergent Alliance and others, uh, the National Digital Twin Program itself around COVID-19. And then the recognition that that was really but a point in time, albeit a, an extended point in time challenge, when you have things like climate change, where you have things like the biodiversity challenge, which are longitudinal. Yeah, I, I, I like what you're saying, Hallie, and, and I, I really hope that it's correct. Um, I guess I, I still have a residual worry, though, because um, uh, I, I, I definitely feel that the way forward has to be more connected. You know, we need, need to pull together to address these big systemic challenges. Uh, and there's just a possibility that we will. Uh, you know, as, as we've discussed, there's the, the kind of the, the timing and the management and the, the whole critical mass thing that makes it feel like it, it could happen. Uh, and the thing is, we need it to happen in order to address those challenges. Uh, but I don't think that it's completely settled yet. I don't think that it's a, it's a, it's a for sure thing, because you can almost see um, kind of a, a point in the road where either we go down the more connected, work together, pull together to address the, these big challenges, and then we have a hope of doing it. Or, you know, the, the other road 
leads to breaking into smaller factions and, and just you know looking after oneself and and doing the, the best you can and you know hang the rest and and i i worry that there's some pretty strong human behavior down each of those roads uh, and it's it's not absolutely sure which way humanity will choose to go um you know i i sincerely hope that we we realize that the best way is to pull together and actually work together to solve the problems rather than break into our factions and fight for our little piece. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, uh, each uh, organisation and each sector is going to have their own objectives and standards as well. So how do we focus on cooperating across boundaries? Well, I, I think I think it's really interesting that the point that Mark raises around the fact that while we are at an inflection point, while there is a critical mass, it is not a done deal. It is not a it is not a foregone conclusion that we will walk the path that I think we we probably collectively on this call feel that we should be walking. Um, and of course, one of the dangers always is that you end up um, preaching to the choir that that you know like minded individuals gather in like minded spaces or virtual spaces as we are now um, to talk about cooperation across boundaries. And and I think there's an important need. Um, to demonstrate the value in the short term for people and to show why it works. And, and I know that we have a phrase and one of the founders at IOTICS, Mark, talks about selfish altruism, that, that the idea of cooperation is not something that is born of, I do this solely for the greater good, but, but how can we show the value to people in the short term? But I'm very interested... Um, Giuliano and what what you think are the the barriers for people in terms of um, doing innovation scaling innovation because I think I think there is a human aspect but I think I think there are a number of barriers that might uh, force us down um, I was about to say left or right I've got no idea which is better or worse but but one of the, the fork in the road that that I certainly don't want us to take what are the barriers preventing preventing that innovation preventing that scaling of innovation yeah, yeah. Uh, organization for, uh, can be innovative, fast to deliver, excited to engage with each new venture, driving, driving uh, implementation at a rapid scale if and only if they will invest in the individuals. So they are engaged and benefit from the opportunity to, of the digital age instead of being re re restrained by the fear of uh, losing advantages acquired, promised or foresee in the past industrial age. I think um, uh, that uh, fear, fear is uh, the um, triggers a countless of uh, other negative emotions, um, limit, limits individuals and uh, compromise the transformation, the entire process of transformation. Uh, the, um, uh, the, the fear it, it, is, uh, it absolutely has to be reduced, managed and recycled into positive energy, uh, energy through the entire process of transformation. Absolutely. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned fear there, actually. I mean, the fears are very understandable. But so like so if you start to notice that people are actually starting to see the valuing in cooperation, how do you nurture that sort of evolution of trust, if you like? I think part of it is to do with the nature and the quality of, of leadership. 
um, because I, I don't I don't think that all of this good stuff that we're talking about happens in a vacuum or, or even happens just by itself. I, th I think it needs uh, to be helped along. Uh, and um, I think that the type of leadership that is needed in this context is quite different from the type of leadership in other contexts. And so, so really what I'm, I'm kind of getting at is that I think uh, the, the leadership that's needed is a kind of a, a visionary boundary spanning leadership. Uh, visionary in the sense of knowing or being able to see where we could get to the desirable place and being able to articulate that in a really uh, compelling and coherent way that, that excites people and that, yes, actually, we want to go down that fork in the road, not the other one. So, so there's, there's something about the visionary, but the, then there's also this boundary spanning piece, which I feel really needs to be a kind of a low ego form of, of leadership. Uh, not not the kind of look at me I'm the big leader type of type of leadership, but a leadership which is really pro common good. Uh, and I think as part of that, uh, you know, it it needs to be a type of leadership uh, that can uh, convene and connect and coordinate. And it's all about helping to make the connections across the boundaries. Uh, I don't think it's a kind of a command and control leadership. And, and the reason for me saying that is you know, when you look at the size of the system and how complex a system is, um, that the system isn't actually controllable. There would be no leadership that was kind of clever enough to know how to control it in a, in a top-down command and control kind of way. And so effectively, it, it has to have something which is more convening, connecting, coordinating. So, so I, think, I think the kind of the quality and nature of leadership really will matter in this. And, and hopefully those kind of leaders will emerge across these boundaries and will join up. I, I think that's fascinating that there's, a, there's one of these laws, um, Conway's law says that technolo technology is built to mirror the organizations that build it. And for me, there's a, and, and vice versa. And then for me, there's a kind of extrapolation, I think, Mark, from what I heard there, that it is unrealistic to expect a technology that is cross-boundary, decentralized, has common good, enables human flourishing to be implemented by leadership that ultimately wants command and control. And that's leadership both at the tech companies, but also at things like governmental bodies, um, NGOs, and so on. That if there is a desire for command and control from the individuals, we will have systems and approaches that have command and control built into them by, by necessity. Um, you, you can only build what you know. I also think there's something very interesting about this notion uh, you had, Mark, of, um, again, going back to an old, uh, old phrase that uh, you can achieve anything if you don't mind who gets the credit. And that, and that kind of this does require us to approach this and recognize that while we can cooperate and we can we can agree the rules of the game and compete on it and there will be winners and losers um it isn't about there being our person or organization or piece even reputationally that is held up as these guys are the answer these guys have got it um because otherwise because otherwise they are they will be confined to their sector their horizontal their their language their territory whatever it might be and that need to really genuinely break down the barriers on the people side, I hadn't thought of before. And I think it's a really, really valid point. Yeah, and I have to say, I, I like that um, little analogy of, of the game as well, because I, I think that effectively, we've got to play a very big game here. And um, we do have to collaborate on the rules. 
you know, we, we need to know how we can can work together. You know, I, I'm a, a big believer in competition as well, but you need to you know, know what you're competing about because you're in that competition, all sorts of fantastic stuff comes out of it. Um, but there has to be a bigger aim of the game. You know, and, and the aim of the game for me must be that the winners end up being people and society and nature. You know, when, and when we pull together in that game, uh, then the uh, the outcomes of it um, are kind of what we all want and need. Yeah. And so how how can we uh, innovate, deliver meaningful change, Giuliana? I mean, how how do you see us actually starting to move the dial and 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 starting to make progress? Yeah, let's go to the how. Uh, for me, my point of view, uh, the digital era era is not about making human feels in, uh, insignificant. It is a call to use more of our, our inequality brain power to aim higher and achieve significant things while delegating menial tasks to machines. However, above and, above and beyond technology, the organization leaders must have the abilities necessary, necessary to accomplish the transformation uh, from a silo-based uh, hierarchy to wall system optimization. Let's think about the role of a CIO, Chief Information Officer, uh, which is the role that uh, is emerging most of all of the in the implementation of the large-scale innovation strategy at every stage. If, C, uh, you know, uh, if CIOs don't acquire the ability, um, they will very soon become relics and something, something that can be uh, easily disposed. The CEOs need to understand, uh, then the, the CEOs need to understand how to organize uh, and manage their often limited resource in a way that uh, have the most impact on the business. Uh, what are the factors to determine the success of an organization that is uh, driving innovation at uh, a large scale? I think uh, CEOs need to focus on, uh, the, on those and design them understanding what triggers success is the key. It is about examining, examining the fundamentals of a corporate corporate sustainability i think i think it's really interesting you flag the cio there because they're there and going back to mark's point on leadership and a new type of leadership and indeed juliana your earlier point about fear that there was a report that came out of cio.com uh, maybe three years ago certainly pre-pandemic uh, my grasp of time has slightly shifted over the last two years and a day seems to last about a decade and a year passes in about a month. Um, but certainly, certainly three years ago uh, or more. But they were saying that CIOs had been seen by other members of the organization as a handbrake on innovation and a handbrake on change, largely from a position of fear that, that, that kind of the computer says, no, no, we need to lock this down. You know, everything is safest if we put it in a lead line box at the bottom of the ocean type piece. And that now there was a new generation of CIOs, a new generation of leaders who were starting to see that they could be the instigators of change rather than being driven by sales or marketing or, or R&D within larger organizations where they have a separate division. But that actually the CIOs themselves were able to say, look, we can do stuff. 
and, and interesting you mentioned the limited resources as well because I think that that for me brings back to that point uh Mark that you were making about the fork in the road that for each organization for each individual are we at a point where there's a fork that is comparatively safe in the short term comparatively low effort has has the benefit of inertia you know do I get fired for doing the same thing I did last year the same thing I did last month and is and is the 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 fork in the road to change is it the one that requires a little bit of risk I mean whether personal professional whatever else and Lindsay mentioned the evolution of trust I mean do we have to recognize that that doing things differently doing different things um might might require these humble visionary leaders to to be seen to be taking a risk to seem to be disrupting the status quo is there almost like an evolution of trust piece like internally is it almost like um leaders need to learn to build trust with their team to not to lessen their sort of like command approach that they've had in the past i think there's definitely something to do with that elite evolution of trust within organizations and uh, within those teams so so, so yes but I think maybe even more important uh, is the evolution of trust um, between organisations. And, and if we're talking about pulling together uh, towards a better future that, that actually you can only get to uh, in a more joined up world. And, and you know, what Ali was talking about at the, the, the top of this, there's the whole idea of having interoperability across boundaries, which, which then opens up so many possibilities for, for, for people and, and provides a context within which innovation can thrive. Um, but you don't get to that uh, unless organisations are kind of work together, because otherwise there is there's no interoperability at the human level across those boundaries so how can you have interoperability at a technical level and I, so i think that it's that kind of interoperability at a human level which is the evolution of trust that, that you talk about lindsay so I, so i think we need to kind of have that evolution of trust at a number of different levels basically <laughs> and, the, and the one that matters to choose this fork that we are now talking about in the road uh, i think is is one between organizations I, I find that fascinating because it's the thing that we most commonly hear, I most commonly hear, is that people talk about the evolution of trust between organizations, the interoperability between organizations in a completely different way when they talk about the technology than they do as people. Like we as individuals come together with our competitors at conferences, in conversation, we work with our suppliers, you know, sending emails back and forth. And then you start to talk about a technical aspect to it and it becomes, oh, no, I'd never share any information with them. I'd never share any data with them. Like it's not allowed outside the walls of my business. And we were talking uh, to a utility company not so long ago. You know, we, we couldn't possibly get involved in this kind of thing. Why not? Because we don't share data. OK, but how do you work with suppliers now? Oh, we send them CSV files. OK, so blank csv files no 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 no. they've got reams and reams of information within them that and it's it's almost like there's a kind of the trust bit between organizations is is itself multi-leveled in that there are people that we trust at organizations there are contacts we trust at organizations but is there an inherent distrust of a technical solution maybe because they have previously been command and control and you felt that you were giving up something uh, and giving up some control to a technical solution um 
when now, uh, you know, if you look at things like the UK's National Digital Twin Program, there's absolutely a sense that you retain control of what you're sharing and what you're doing, um, as opposed to as opposed to um, giving up. Just as Giuliano was touching on a little moment ago about it's not about the machines taking stuff away from people in, in terms of control or or or, or um, interoperability from from a from a thing to be worried about. It's about augmenting what we're doing, about augmenting where we go. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I know that um, I've seen a lot of the time people don't quite understand the difference between selective sharing and a more open, like open data approach. So, so why is that? Why is there seem to be a complete miscommunication there, generally speaking? Um, I think it's because we, we don't um, talk about data intelligently enough yet. I mean, it, it's a fairly new thing, isn't it? It's kind of a relatively new kid on the, on the block. Uh, and so as a society, I don't think that we've developed the, the, the kind of the terminology or the language to, to deal with it quite properly. Uh, and so we, we tend to conflate it all into to kind of one, one big blob of stuff called data, but actually, you know, not all data is the same. And, and if you look at personal data, then absolutely you want to protect it. You know, privacy totally matters. And yeah, personal data, absolutely. You know, put, put the lock on it. In fact, look after your own personal data yourself. Don't let anyone have that. You know, personal data is very different in nature to systems data. You know, all the data about our systems that, that are, are all around us in the, in the built environment um, the built environment that we and our forebears have paid for, you know, all, all this you know, amazing assets and networks and, and systems. And there's an awful lot of data that relates to that, that can help to make those systems work better uh, for ourselves. And the difference between the personal data and the systems data is, is enormous, but we don't have the, the kind of the terminology to, to discuss that. And certainly when it comes to openness as well, uh, you can kind of think, we, we, we kind of need to learn from people like the um, Open Data Institute, you know, pe people have really given this a, a lot of thought uh, and do have the terminology so we can make a distinction between that kind of stuff that only very special people can see and that kind of stuff uh, that really should be open for all to see and, and, and make a clear distinction. But I think while we, while we think of data as this big blob of, of stuff and there's no distinction between it, then, then we can't have the intelligent conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Giuliano, I'd be interested to, to know from your experience as well about the kind of whole education piece about data. Is it still a case of winning hearts and minds so that people really put the effort into learning about these things? Or, or is it just that we don't have enough resources out there for people that maybe just don't quite understand yet? Yeah, yeah. Um, let me explain more, clarify the, the, um, the, the link between... Uh, machines and uh, and uh, and the uh, people and uh, to to arrive to this uh, concept uh, digital digital is forcing us to rethink the way we can accomplish anything in the light of what te uh, is technological te technologically possible every day more technology and the business innovation disrupting our words by real innovation we mean something that removes an existing limitations. Um, however, while digital transformation is powered by technology, we must bear in mind that it is created by innovation strategy. A good inno innovation strategy, of course, uh, is absolutely vital for uh, 
to take advantage of the of new business intelligence, which is obviously a combination of human and artificial intelligence, and thus redefine control system and production. The new business intelligence assumes that companies must become data-driven decision makers in order to benefit from this competitive advantage. Obviously, co 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 cooperation and uh, around systemic solution purposes, that is, uh, the, um, in those large value networks where we have digital and decentralized uh, transaction, customer uh, must become the main source of inno innovative ideas of uh, companies. Um, their advocates uh, in product development even contribute to them. Yeah, I think I think there's a couple of uh, pieces there that I think are very interesting. Is that there is something here about language? I mean, and I realize Giuliano, uh, um, we're, we're working in your second language, but nevertheless, this this distinction between intelligence and data, you know, data with context becomes something that's intelligent. It becomes something that can be used. Uh, Mark, again, thank you. I hadn't really thought about this notion of of the lack of nomenclature, the lack of language. Um, being a problem and indeed uh, to be candid there's an entire industry out there that deliberately um, confuses on some of this you know you deliberately try and create terms that make your offering distinct or what you're doing distinct and you know, all the various hype cycles and curves and quadrants and so on that, that seek to create silos of language themselves as well that mean that we end up um, having conversations you know it was a long complaint of mine that the Internet of Things itself siloed something that was just the Internet with things in it. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a brand new Internet. It wasn't a separate and distinct piece. It was an extension of something that people were familiar with, but was by various organizations deliberately kind of ghettoized um, to do it. And I but I think that recognition that all data is not the same. All data is not the same as intelligence. Um, also helps us with one of the points of friction that I see that five years ago, maybe we would have seen that data was seen to be valuable in and of itself. You know, just simply the acquisition of data would somehow magically help you. Know, the, the, you know, Juliana's point about needing to be data driven, you actually had a kind of dragon-esque hoarding of data to say, if I have enough petabytes of data, there will somehow be a blossoming from that manure somehow a flower will emerge that will that will help my business and i think we're starting to see across the board globally people saying that actually it isn't data it's the intelligence it's the context and now a lot of that context will come from boundary breaking interoperability because because i might have the data but my data combined with Giuliano's data, combined with Mark's data, combined with atmospheric data, environmental data, built environment data, gives me the context of understanding something that on my own, I can't see that context. I can't understand it. And if I don't have the context, I actually don't have the intelligence. If I don't have the intelligence, then how is it, how is it going to affect my decisions? I mean, looking at a number on a, on a screen, looking at a row in a spreadsheet doesn't tell me anything. I need the context. And if we can find a language that convinces people that that context that intelligence is what will enable them to make better decisions and maybe maybe that helps
yeah, I, I, I like I like a lot of what you're saying in there, Ali. Uh, not surprisingly, but um, just to pick up on on a few of the words that, that you were using in there, um, I think that um, we kind of need to be able to focus on the thing that actually matters, um, and I think uh, what actually matters uh, are better outcomes better outcomes for people and society and nature. You know, that, that, that's what we want, surely. You know, that, that's, that's, that's the thing that actually matters. Um, and data itself in that context doesn't matter. It's, it's just data. But you kind of need to know how do you turn data into better outcomes? Uh, and that's where I think it becomes really useful to kind of see that information value chain that does make the connection. And I think that you know you, you've already painted a lot of that picture, that, that data by itself is is just data, uh, but if you make sense of it, you know you generate insight from it. The insight is of much greater value than the the original data, and you you do hear about people saying, oh, there's just too much data around the place just now, and, and I would say, well, actually, there's too little insight, and so so now we get the insight, but you know insight is not outcomes and so in order to get the outcomes you need something more which i think is making the better decisions so you use the insight to make the better decisions hopefully the better decisions lead to better interventions and then the interventions lead to the better outcomes but but i think it is possible to show that direct connection between data and outcomes and right in the middle the kind of the pivot around which the whole thing swings is making better decisions and, and I think the thing is, if we if we don't make better decisions faster, then, then what on earth are we doing with the data? Um, and I think that's what releases the value in, in all of this. Um, but a very useful thing, I think, for all of us who do work in the kind of the data space is to realise that, that the thing that actually matters is, is whether or not it's leading to better outcomes. Absolutely. So... Um... If listening to this conversation, uh, someone realises that they do need to make better decisions to cooperate better, what are some of the things that they can do today? So, obviously, there's also, I mean, they could come to IOTICS. No. Uh, the, what could they do today? I mean, the, the biggest thing they could do today is to start thinking about what the outcomes are, to pick up, pick up Mark's language. What are the outcomes they're trying to drive at? It, and again, I mean, a lot of this actually does come back to that leadership question. It isn't enough to recognize you have a problem. You do need to start having that vision of where, where it is you're going, what it is you're doing. And then to look beyond your borders at who can help you get there. Because I, I think that I think the recognition of what the challenge is and what the outcome you want is the starting point. We have all seen, all of us, um, adoption of technology for technology's sake or or the 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 kind of clinging to the the life boy of well people tell me that cloud will be the thing that solves my life or digital twins will be the thing that solves my life or interoperability which isn't thinking about the outcome the outcome is what is it you're trying to achieve where are you trying to go and then who can help you get there and if you start from there i think we'll see and we are seeing that that kind of progressive change the need you know innovation is really about continuous transformation and, and that and that cycle of, of movement and and just doing stuff I mean just starting I mean the you know not only do our decisions need to speed up our, our, our actions do you know our, our getting on and doing it and not talking about doing it and not wondering about whether there is an ideal platonic ideal of what this might look like but just start 
start somewhere start with the intention to scale start with the vision but start i mean like i i cannot listen to someone tell me that they recognize that there's a problem that they can see that there might be a solution and maybe by 2035 they'll be in a position to act like ecosystems do not pop up overnight solutions do not come up overnight um amy webb used to say the future doesn't arrive fully formed we have to build it step by step we have to start if you see a problem who can help you start working start talking start moving yeah i i couldn't agree more um so if if um ali has has kind of taken that one of just start which i think is the best way of getting started is <laughs> like i i agree um i think that there there's some foundation stuff that needs to to be sorted out as well and so the thing that i'm going to say you know my contribution to this this bit is going to be really really boring it's it's the kind of the cinderella bit um, because there's going to be all sorts of fun stuff out there in terms of this innovation and innovating at scale and also yeah there's going to be loads of amazing things you know not least of which will be around cyber physical infrastructure and connected digital twins and i could go on about the fun stuff um, but i think that there's some basic foundational hard graft that needs to be done in the background uh, to, to make all of the fun stuff um, more more fun and more possible uh, and, and that is basically getting our data sorted out and I said it was going to be boring didn't I but you know we, we do need to have consistent high quality data models and we need to get towards having some shared reference data and that's that's hard because you need to get people to agree to it and you know people are people uh, and you know, we need to move towards having some kind of semantic precision, which is hard. So, so that's the bit that I would point to. It's the, it's the kind of the bit uh, under the surface that nobody wants to know about. But actually, if, if, we, if we get it right, it enables loads of fun stuff. But if we get it wrong, then it just makes everything harder. Well, you say it's a boring point, but I think it's also very important. I'm sure anybody that's played a musical instrument or did dance uh, will have heard their teacher say over and over again, practice your scales, get the basics before you can do the fun parts. So, Giuliano, do you have anything to add? Yeah, yeah. Um, Ellie, you, you mentioned um, innovation and how we can start to innovate at the scale. I'd like to cite uh, um, a phrase of uh, a CEO uh, of well-known uh, big tech. Uh, the only way you survive is continuously transform into something else. Uh, it is the idea of continuous transformation that makes you an innovation company. Uh, I really like these, uh, these, um, uh, these uh, phrases. Um, innovation for me is a lovely word, is everywhere. The instinct to innovate is inherent in human nature, I, I think. Probably the innovation to innovate was born before the expression, I like to, to say. Um, never as a today we need to innovate because this is a, uh, this is a, common, this is a common wisdom. Businesses need to innovate to survive, we, we, can, we can say. Um, moreover, to clarify the meaning of the phrase uh, at scale, for me at, at scale um, is moving everything from one level to, to another, to next next level. And that's all we have time for today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, you can find our website at www.iotics.com. You can find Iotics on LinkedIn or on Twitter at iotics underscore news 
And of course, you can give us a follow on your favourite podcasting app, Spotify or Google Podcasts. You can find all three of our guests on LinkedIn. That's Giuliano Ligori, Mark Enzer and Ali Nichol. Giuliano is on Twitter at Ing Ligori and Mark at Enzer underscore Mark. Thank you all so much for listening. I do hope you've enjoyed today's episode. I'm your host, Lindsay Maycock, and I'll see you next time. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.